first Reformed. Wow. Where do I begin with this flick? All right, so I'm going to attempt to uh, evaluate what I just watched, uh, this movie First Reform, starring Ethan Hawke, and of course, um, uh, Amanda. Is it Amanda? I don't know. I don't know their fucking names. Um, <laughs> Amanda Seyfried, I think is how you say it. Cedric the Entertainer, Victoria Hill, Michael Gaston. And um, wow, boy, this movie... Well, as you know from the trailer, I was very interested in the idea of this priest who is losing faith, uh, of this priest who finds himself embroiled in some sort of um, high drama, uh, you know, which, of course, we see in this. I wasn't exactly sure how it was going to play out, but I was certain that I was interested. Well, I just finished watching the movie literally 10 minutes ago, and uh, I took a couple of notes. I'm trying to get all my thoughts in order and boy, this movie is something else. Uh, essentially, you have this Reverend Taller. By, by the way, I just want to say this right up front. I think Ethan Hawke is great in this movie. Um, I've always been a fan of Ethan Hawke. I think he's a great actor. I think he does a good job as Reverend Ernst Taller. Uh, I want to start things off there. I also want to say that this is by Paul Schrader, who has been in the movie business a long time. He actually wrote Taxi Driver, if I'm not mistaken. So he goes way back, and there's a lot of similarities between this and Taxi Driver, where you have a character seemingly full of contradictions who is uh, searching for meaning and uh, considering a grand, uh, a grand murder spree by way of, at least in this film, blowing up himself with a suicide vest and a bunch of people that are attending the First Reform's restoration or re-consecration, I believe is what they call it. So the plot is pretty simple. It's a reverend who gets embroiled in this situation where he's talking to this man, Michael, who is a friend of his by way of the character played by Seyfried, which is Mary. So Mary and Michael are a couple. Mary's been um, worried about her husband, Michael. They go to see Reverend Toller, and he starts to reveal the hopelessness of life the hopelessness of the future. He's uh, full of dread and desolation. And he begins to wonder about things like the environment, about things like global warming. It's It's got a very environmental bend to it, this film. And I didn't really expect that. To be perfectly frank with you, I didn't love that part of this movie as much as I was more interested in some of the stuff brought up brought up by Reverend uh, Jeffers, which, of course, is uh, Cedric the Entertainer. Uh, Jeffers, at one point, and in a preview, I believe, he says something about, you know, there's these kids grow up in a world that, they, that we wouldn't recognize, global warming, porn, violent video games, world without privacy, each kid isolated and communicating on media. They are frightened. They want certainty. They don't think they follow. They fall prey to extremism. We have to listen and guide and encourage young members to express themselves without judging them. Lead by example. Be patient. That idea was the idea that interested me the most in this movie, more so than the environmental stuff. I didn't mind the environmental stuff. It was just unexpected. And that's exactly what's going on at the beginning of this flick with this Michael character. And uh, Michael, of course, played by Philip Edinger, is he's hurting. And his wife, Mary, is pregnant. And he has lots of dark thoughts about that. 
Mary confesses to Toller that Michael's trying to kill their baby, meaning I guess he wants her to get an abortion, which of course in the eyes of a church is a big no-no. Now, I am not going to do much moralizing in this film because I think the film kind of handles that, but I feel like this is a cool setup. I like the idea that this priest, this reverend Toller, is going through something. He starts by saying he's going to write down all his thoughts. It's a, it's a substitution for prayer. He struggles to pray these days. He almost feels like there's no meaning left, and he's a very lost. He's adrift, this, this Reverend Toller character. And in comes Mary with her husband, Michael, and Michael is really adrift. He's thinking dark things. He is, for, for, God, for all intents and purposes, he's suicidal. He has... In, in beyond suicidal, he's actually homicidal because he has constructed himself a suicide vest that comes up a little bit later in the plot that Mary uncovers and goes to the, to the reverend with. But the reverend Toller, this is, this is really his movie. It's not really Mary's movie. It's definitely not Michael's movie because he's out of it pretty quickly when he kills himself with a shotgun blast to the face. And, uh, it's not Jeffers movie. It's not Esther's movie who is, I guess, uh, um, a woman that has had contact with Toller. I guess they're kind of close and perhaps they have been intimate in the, in the past. And uh, it's not, it's not that this is Reverend Toller's movie. Toller who convinced his son in the family tradition to, to go into the military who was then killed in Iraq. Of course, Reverend Toller feels great guilt about this great guilt about pushing his son in the direction of Iraq into what he calls a, a, uh, Virtually a meaningless conflict in the desert, I believe, is how Reverend Toller describes it, uh, which is an interesting concept. So there's a lot to talk about here. This, there is the, the ideas that Michael puts forth about environmentalism, because that plays a huge factor in Toller's arc, because he takes up the mantle. He takes up the mantle that Michael has been putting forth about our inability to interact with the world without destroying it on a mass scale, which is what Michael's issue was, which then by proxy becomes Toller's sort of uh, cross to bear. <laughs> I guess you could say, pardon the pun. And then how that plays into this other large church. And the setup is kind of cool. You know, I like that we have this reverend who wants to help this guy who's very troubled, who ends up killing himself, to which then Toller takes up the mantle. We have this tiny little church called First Reform. The congregation is small. Nobody goes, which is a satellite of this giant corporate church called the Abundant Life with TV screens and tons of pews and tons of money they get from this, this bulk character who is tied into all this environmental stuff, bulk industries. So there's a lot of that plot stuff that I didn't expect. There's a lot of political ramifications that I didn't expect that I thought was interesting. So I would definitely say to check the movie out because I don't want to get totally lost in the plot of this movie because a lot goes on, but it's really simple. And that's what I've said. Toller takes up the mantle of Michael's cause. He tries to find some meaning in everything. And then he contemplates blowing up the church at the end, along with all these environmentalists and fake people who are, in his opinion, destroying God's creation, which is the earth. But there's so many contradictory things going on in this movie, and that's one of the things I thought that was compelling about it. So a couple of the thematic things, a couple of the provoking talking points that I want to 
get into. He, he asks himself in the beginning of the film, Toller does, did Jesus worry about being liked? You know, he thinks about that. He talks about pride. He wonders about pride versus truth. Uh, the changing world, mostly environmental, the feeling of impending dread and doom, a pessimistic outlook in the idea of bringing a child into this world. Now, I found it interesting that Toller followed almost a similar path to Michael in his disdain for the people who harm the environment. And ironically, those same people are the one who fund abundant life, who by proxy fund first reformed. So there's all of this hypocrisy going around. And that's something that I thought was compelling about it. I like that everybody's dirty in this movie. I like that there is a lot of interpretation from multiple sides and nobody really has a straight moral high ground in this movie. That's something I love about it. You know, you have Reverend Toller preaching as, as, the, as the movie rolls on, the idea of polluting the earth and poisoning the earth, while at the same time poisoning and polluting his own body with massive alcoholic consumption. I mean, he's drinking hard liquor to excess nightly. He is ill. It could be as a result of that or it could just be being exacerbated by that. You get the impression that he could have cancer. It comes up. He kind of ignores it. And that's something that probably weighs heavily on his conscience. But when Michael goes to him, and this is the first major plot point of the movie, that is probably one of the most compelling parts of the movie, he says to Toller that you know he's concerned with all these environmental things and to bring a child into this world, which eerily reminded me of a sentiment shared by Kurt Cobain. If I'm not mistaken, Kurt Cobain had these major reservations about bringing a child into this world that is full of despair. And Michael echoed those ideas and those thoughts that I remember were, were something I heard Kurt Cobain had said. Now, I didn't research that. I can't say for certain, but I feel like that is something that happened. And he says, you know, someday when your child grows up, she's going to look at you. This is Michael speaking now and say to you, you knew all along that the world was like this, yet you decided to still bring me into it, into it, which is a brutally harsh way to consider life. Now, you can, you can say what you want about the decision to or the decision not to bring somebody into this world by way of becoming a parent. But what I don't think, it's clear that Michael is damaged, right? It's clear that Michael is feeling utter hopelessness and is suicidal. In fact, kills himself, which is sad because I feel like one of the most compelling parts of this movie is when Reverend Toller retorts him. When Michael goes to him with all of these terrible thoughts and ideas, Reverend Toller's retort is, he says, this is not about the baby or Mary. And I'm going to paraphrase here. It's about you and your despair, your lack of hope. People have woken up in the dead of night confronted by blackness, that our lives are without meaning. Man's greatest achievements have brought him to a place where life as we know it may cease in the immediate future. That's new, but the blackness is not. And I want to put a pin in this right here because I think what Reverend Toller is saying is, I guess you could almost say he's suggesting the idea of our ability to annihilate ourselves many times over with the creations that we have now as opposed to, say, in the 1400s. In the 1400s, you couldn't nuke an entire city or many cities at once. And I just found that interesting that Toller said, man's greatest achievements have brought him to the place where life as we know it may cease in the immediate future because of the achievements that we've created, which is this fascinating irony 
about people, the duality of the human condition, which is the more you risk, the, the, more, the, the higher the reward you chase, the bigger the risk, it's almost saying, in a sense, right? Because when technology is less and we haven't achieved and we haven't discovered these other things, and, and in our pursuit of those things, we've made life better, right? I don't think anyone's going to argue in earnest and unironically that life in 1426 is better than life in 2018 for the vast majority of people on the planet Earth. I think it's going to be a hard case to make that argument. But it does present certain things. There's no mutual exclusivity here on these ideas. And that's what Toller is saying is that we can we could cease to exist as a result of all of these things. And that's almost like when you distill it, a risk versus reward. High risk, high reward, low risk, low reward. We want to solve things, he says. Because blackness has always been there for people. We've always considered oblivion, right? We want rational answers, Toller tells Michael, because Michael can't find rational answers and his inability to find rational answers is what leads to his despair. When you go onto the internet and you look at garbage piles and smog and you know tires littering everything and the vast wastes and destruction that is wrought upon earth by humanity, if that's all you go in looking at, then that's all you're going to see. If your mission is... I want to I wanna delve into the terrible things of the world. You can do it in anything. You can do it with anything you want to do, which is one of the things that's fascinating about this movie. You can create a virtual echo chamber of ideas, and those ideas can just reverberate around in your head over and over and over again. And that's what Michael has done. And you can do it on anything. If you want to go and look at the like, like things like, say, the terrible idea of racism and you want to dive into it and read articles and look at old things and you're going to work yourself up. If you want to look at disease and all the terrible things of disease and how cancer has done this and that, and you want to delve into that, then that's going to be all the things you think about. It's going to become an echo chamber, an obsession, right? Extremism, you could say, in the isolation of that single idea. And you know, this reminds me of a class I took, and then I'm going to get back to getting to Toller's retort here, this blackness. But I took a, a history class once at UMass Dartmouth <clears throat> where the Blackhawk helicopters were looking for Zarnev after the, after the marathon bombing. Kind of strange, strange connection here. But I remember um, I had this professor. His name was Pontbriand, and it was a medieval history class. And it was excellent. I loved this guy. I thought he was a great professor. Shout out to Pontbriand. And he was talking about, he wanted to show us, um, I don't know, I don't remember exactly how this related to medieval history, but the idea was the human's capability to wrought destruction, while at the same time, the human's ability to wrought broody, beauty, excuse me, to, to bring beauty, to infect the world with beauty. And he told us we were going to watch some concentration camp stuff. But before that, we all sat around, he put on the TV, and he said, I want you to watch this. And he played a concert pianist playing Mozart. And I don't remember the piece of music. I just remember it being incredibly beautiful. Now, when I took this class, I was a lot older than other people. A lot of people groaned at the idea of watching a concert pianist play Mozart. Some people did not. 
I was definitely into it. I can't speak for anybody else but myself, but it was awesome. It was beautiful. It was, it was magnificent. It was captivating. It was this wonderful piece of music and the expertise in which this pianist played was something to behold. And then he put on footage of concentration camp stuff. Concentration camp guards dragging dead corpses by their heels and throwing these skinny husks of people into this mass grave and piles of bodies emaciated with starvation and frozen from the winter. And the casual nature in which all of this was done by these guards who had dehumanized these people. And he was talking about this real yin and yang between the idea of this person captivating an entire room of people with beautiful music, making people weep with joy at the beauty of Mozart, while at the same time taking a bulldozer to push 40 or 50 emaciated corpses into a mass grave because you starved and worked them to death. That always sat with me. That always sat with me. And that struggle, that idea encapsulated in that whatever it was, 55-minute class that day, is a lesson I never forgot, which was you can, it's important to understand that the, the horrors of the concentration camp, World War II, the Holocaust, et cetera. But do you want to grow so obsessed with them that that's all you see and that you're only full of despair? I don't know. And on the flip side, should you always just surround yourself with beauty and pretend that other things like what happened did not exist by just listening to Mozart all day and shelter yourself. I don't think that's the answer either. And I think there's a balance. And I find it interesting that balance, the idea of yin and yang entered a largely Western thematic film, such as first reformed, which of course is about Christianity in a sense. But we see Michael, his head is on the video I watched in class, right? And what Toller is trying to do, Ethan Hawke's character, is to drag him a little out of that to get him into the middle. And it's hard. You know, we want to solve things, he tells him. We want rational answers. If humankind can't overcome its immediate interests enough to ensure its own survival, then you're right. The only rational response is despair. Let me say that again. If humankind can't overcome its immediate interests enough to ensure its own survival, then you're right. The only rational response is despair. He's almost like saying, if we are all just selfish in the moment, then despair makes sense. And then he continues by saying, do you think there is any existence apart from this, this here, right now, before us, after us? And you know, the music kind of fades away. And to get out of the central ideas and thematic things in the movie, this is where Toller's starts to voice over and he says how he finds this conversation so exhilarating, the grappling with these ideas. And it's almost like he's getting invigorated by this conversation with Michael. And so was I. This was a great part of the movie, which gets into the plot. Again, I don't want to get too much into plot with this film because I think these ideas are more important. And I like this. I think this is fascinating that he's trying to pull Michael back from the brink, which is almost hypocritical because on the one hand, that's where Toller is. So Toller is saying these words and he's exhilarated at the idea of grappling with these ideas more so than he is exhilarated with the idea of helping Michael, 
which I am making an assumption on based on what the narrator tells us. And I thought that was really wild. I thought it it added a lot to this movie. They go on and we move past this, right? We move past this from the brink, the despair, and you know they, they equate activism with martyrdom, wondering what the purpose of the deaths were of the people who died in the name of the environment. That's another thing Michael does. Intolerant levels with him by telling him, look, I, I talked my son into a war that had no justification. Courage is the solution to despair, he tells Michael. Reason provides no answers. That's important. When you look, when I think back in the concentration camp video, or I think back on the, the Mozart, Reason does provide no answers to why it encapsulates you so and makes you feel something, or at least it did me that day in class many years ago. And the same thing, you could say it's hard to put reason into something as horrific as the horrors of World War II, specifically the Holocaust, right? Reason provides no answers, thus despair comes in. It's, it's scary. Courage is the solution to despair. I like that. Toller also says, wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our minds simultaneously. Wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our minds simultaneously. Hope and despair. Holding hope and despair in your head simultaneously is wisdom. Yin and yang. Holding both. Understanding both. Dipping into both. A life without despair is a life without hope. Holding these two ideas in our head is life itself. Right? What is light without darkness, I believe, is spoken in the, in the fantasy film Legend. That's what we're saying here. It's what we've been saying forever. Can you know victory without defeat? Can you know defeat without victory? Can God forgive us for what we've done to this world, Michael wonders. And that's when Toller tries to convince him to just pursue a righteous life and whatever that means to Michael, which might not be the best advice in this case because clearly he's mentally compromised. And that's something that I found interesting about this movie, this, this contradicting thoughts throughout. It's fascinating. It's definitely worth a watch. Now, the other thing I want to talk about in this movie, the other big thing I teased at the start, and then we'll wrap it up here, but this, this stuff where Reverend Toller says, there is no middle ground with these kids. This comes on, there's a scene where they have a bunch of kids sitting in a circle and they're all talking about, finding God and things like this. And then one of the kids kind of gets pissed off because um, Cynthia's father, one of the characters' father, minor character, doesn't matter. The point is one of somebody's father can't get work and loves God more than anybody. And she wonders why, why? And this is something all the time. Why does a, why does a bus full of kids get blown up? Why does, why does a sweet, innocent person die? Well, how does this play into God's plan? Now I'm fairly ignorant on religion. I'm going to tell you that right now, but I know that this is something that comes up often, which is this idea of why do these terrible things happen if God is just and merciful? And there's always a slew of answers, which I'm not going to denigrate or, or celebrate. Those, those are questions you have to seek and answers you have to seek for yourself. But in the film, in the context of the movie, Toller says, there is no connection between godliness and prosperity. Jesus doesn't teach or live that. And there is no American flag either, which I thought was an interesting shoe-in. Because one of the kids gets mad and says, well, what is Christianity for losers? Is that what this means? What, why stand for anything if we can't stand for this? And he gets kind of upset. 
And that leads to this very compelling scene. That, that's, so that's the backdrop where Toller is talking to Jeffers. Ethan Hawke is talking to Cedric the Entertainer. <laughs> and Toller says, there's no middle ground with these kids. Everything is so extreme. And I emboldened that. I don't think it's just kids. You know, I think that uh, millennials get a bad rap a lot of times. And I think it's common for us to think collectively. I think we like to lump people into categories because it makes our life easier. It's easier to say dumb liberals. It's easier to say backwards conservatives. It's easier to say stupid millennials that don't want to work. It's easy to say baby boomers who had everything handed to them. I mean, all of those statements are dumb and they'd make no sense whatsoever. It's just, it's just something we do with our monkey brains to put people into groups so we can rationalize our own thoughts. It makes life easier for us to categorize people this way. And people like to do it. They like to put you into a group immediately. Now, that's not to say that there is no difference, generally speaking, between large swaths of the population that are 20 and large swaths of the population that are 40. That, that exists, okay? But I just, I always warn people to consider collectivist thinking, not to get too deep into it, not to erase their own identity by way of identifying with the group instead of the individual. But I digress. Toller says, there is no middle ground with these kids. Everything is so extreme. To which Jeffers says, these kids grow up in a world that we didn't, won't, won't recognize, right? I said this at the beginning. Global warming porn, violent video games, a world without privacy. Now, Jeffers and the screenwriter smuggles a couple of things in here that piss me off a little bit, but I, I don't want to get offended. And I know he's just a character with an agenda. And I get that. Global warming. Sure. Are we impacting the environment as human beings? I think you could safely say that's a strong argument as a yes. Are we, is the world under immediate danger to be extinguished by a bunch of humans? I'm not sure that's the case either. But to say one is is 100% true and the other one is 100% false, I'm just not prepared to do that. I also haven't done the research. Porn, is that bad? I guess it depends. Is anything bad in excess? Probably. It gets back to balance. How about violent video games? I've never wanted to kill anybody in my life and I've played a lot of violent video games. And I'll tell you what, they killed a lot of people back in the Inquisition before Grand Theft Auto was ever a thing. But I think we like to blame things, just like we like to categorize people. But I digress. Again, I think the point, the point, point, the important point is this. Each kid isolated and communicating on media. Okay. Okay. That's something. Kids are frightened. They want certainty. They don't want to think. They want to follow. They fall prey to extremism. We have to listen and guide and encourage young members to express themselves without judging them. Lead by example. Be patient. It sounds like a lot of kids need good parenting. They need to be led by example, right? They don't, they should not feel isolated. Human beings are not designed to be isolated, especially young people. Not at all. You want to get old and be a hermit and a monk? Go for it. You figured it out by that point. And I think there's some point to what Jeffers is saying here. And this is the idea of the movie that I really wanted to explore more instead of the environmentalism this is just more interesting to me conceptually, philosophically, than is environmental environmentalism or environmental extremism, as we know that Michael was prepared to wear a suicide vest. But I do like this. I like this part of the movie. I like that this comes up. And it, you know, in a world where we have supercomputers in our pocket, 
the idea of wanting to know something immediately makes sense. But it's funny that we can't always discern truth despite having a a wealth of information at our fingertips. And I feel like that's something Jeffers is getting at. And he's talking about this guidance. Now, Jeffers' goal is clear. And it might be righteous or it might not be. The movie doesn't get into Jeffers, but he wants to fill the the pews. He wants his congregation to be big. He wants to continue to push the abundant life. And probably because he believes it is the right path, which I can respect. But it also sounds kind of corporate. Like we want to lead them. We want to set them up. We want, you know, he's, he's, he's shilling for this environmentalist and he's caught in this thing with the money coming from this guy who's actively destroying the environment, which ties back to Michael's stuff. And and, and it is, there is a lot of connections here in the plot. Again, I don't want to get too much into the plot. And then one of the last things I want to talk about is this idea of anxiety. Now, anxiety pervades many of us more so than it ever has. And Reverend Jeffers says to, to Toller, he says, it's not an indication as to how wise we are, anxiety. Oh no, he says this on, on a speech on TV. He says, anxiety is not an indication as to our wisdom, but rather how wicked we are. Fretting arises from our detrimentation to have our own way. Our Lord was never worried. His purpose was to accomplish not his own plans, which, and then they cut off from there. That's interesting. It's easy, it's easy for a guy like Reverend Jeffers, who seemingly wealthy, has a powerful position in a really large corporate church, to say that others who worry themselves and who fret are wicked because they're not simply just doing the Lord's will. Boy, I don't know about that. That's a tough pill to swallow for me, especially where he is at, right? I do think that there is a direct correlation between anxiety and intelligence. I do think that sometimes people who are more reflective, who consider more, who think more, who are more distinctly aware of their surroundings and the things going on in the world are more prone to anxiety than people who don't, right? I also think it's an indication of being in luxury, relatively speaking. I'm not saying if you have anxiety that you're in a luxurious life, but I do think that when you don't have to sharpen a spear and fend off wolves and worry about where your next meal is going to come and you sleep in a tent, that you can't concern yourselves with worldly affairs. You have to concern yourself with immediate affairs. And the anxiety of the man fighting off the wolves is apparent. It's, am I going to get killed tonight? Where am I going to get my food? And there is something about that. But anxiety is prevalent. And yes, a lot of times it does come from fretting and wondering about the future and concerning yourself with how you're going to exist in the world and feeling like you want to matter, right? Now, the movie doesn't get too much into that. Like I said, it mostly focuses on Toller and his struggle because what we see as the movie moves towards the final act is Toller starting to consider Michael's perspective in the hypocrisy of that. He's talking about how you have to have courage is having hope and despair in your head simultaneously and, and making sure they're managed. That's wisdom. But we see the lack of wisdom in Toller himself, thus the hypocrisy, thus the interesting part of his character. Now, I do know that I say that this is a spoiler cast, and I have spoiled some of the major ideas in this movie, but I don't want to spoil the end of the movie. And I think that's starting to become a theme on this show because I don't want to spoil the end of Red Sparrow, and I certainly don't want to spoil the end of this movie because... 
I'm, I'm kind of at my 30 minutes as it is now, and I'm going to wrap this up. But it is a thought-provoking film. Will Toller follow Michael's path, or will Toller not follow Michael's path? Because Toller starts to get sympathetic of Michael's plight when Toller starts to do his own research on what's happening to the world. What's happening to, quote, God's creation. It starts to perturb him as he gets sicker. As we get to this ref, this uh, reconsecration with all these people are going to show up, what's Reverend Toller going to do? I'm not going to answer that for you, but I do want to, I did want to put forth a lot of these ideas and theories regarding this particular episode in this particular movie because I found them very fascinating. Now, to give this movie my scale, hated it, didn't like it, liked it, loved it, I liked this movie. I'm not going to say I loved it. The ending is a little is a little wonky to me, and you're going to understand why when you watch the movie. So, I urge you to rent First Reformed, check it out. The ending might piss you off. I'm not going to say much about it, but I think it's worth watching. Ethan Hawke is fantastic in this movie, and it does put a lot of questions forward. It doesn't answer a lot of these questions, and it can be a bit ambiguous at times, which is why it's hard for me to say I love this movie. Because sometimes I think the film puts forth ideas that it wants you to contemplate, but it doesn't really want to answer, which is okay, because you don't want the movie to try to tell you how to think, right? Nobody wants that. But I urge you to check it out, and I'm glad I watched the movie. Which brings us to the next episode. So, next week on the episode, on the the podcast, real quick, we're going to talk about Upgrade, okay? (laughs) Upgrade is a little bit different. Upgrade is going to be a bit of a change of pace from First Reformed, and I think that's important, right? If you don't know what Upgrade is about, it's a 2018 film directed by Leigh Winnell, I believe is how you say it, and uh, it's starring a man named Logan Marshall Green as Gray Trace, IMDb says this about Upgrade. Set in the near future, technology controls nearly all aspects of life, but when Gray, a self-identified technophobe, has his world turned upside down, his only hope for revenge is an experimental computer chip called STEM. And that's what we're going to watch. So right now, I'm going to watch the trailer for this movie. As a quadriplegic, it must be frustrating for you, someone who likes to get things done with their hands. Here's the thing. Four guys murdered my wife. If I could find these men, I'd do it. What if I told you I could offer you something that would enable you to walk again? I call it STEM. A computer chip that has the potential to change everything. It's a new, better brain. I am STEM. The system operating your body for you. Can anybody else hear you? No, only you. May I point something out? In the drone surveillance footage, Sir Bradner, Marine Corps, address 414 Citrus, New Grounds. We'll need a plan. I got this. This doesn't seem like a well thought out plan. I need your permission to operate independently. Permission granted! Thank you. Wow. I have no idea what to expect from that movie. That's quite the trailer. I mean, that is definitely a weird-looking movie. You know what it looks like to me? It, it, it appears it appears to be a revenge movie at the outset of that trailer, right? 
But then as it progresses, and obviously I didn't play the whole trailer because it's three minutes long, but as the trailer progresses, it's the, the chip that they put in him to get him moving again, it, it, it talks to him. It makes jokes. It's like Vampire Hunter D's hand, right? If you're familiar with that anime, his hand talks to him and shit like that. That's what this reminds me of. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. This looks like a fun movie. I think it's going to be uh, extremely violent and kind of funny. Uh, I think some of the early moments of that trailer where they're talking about in the world where, with surveillance, I don't know if that's even going to play a factor in the movie. I don't think this is a heady movie. I think this is just a fun, I think it's a fun kick him up and punch him up revenge flick that has a bit of a uh, acerbic wit about it, a bit of a, a comedic bent. So I'm looking forward to that. So go ahead and uh, check that movie out and we will be covering it here on Real Quick an LSG Media Podcast. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. memory of the first time. I was attending my niece's wedding and was at the sink in the men's room when a wet spot on the front of my trousers caught my eye. An unwelcome contribution from my bladder. Fortunately, I was wearing black and with my jacket buttoned, no one would be the wiser anyway, but for me, I knew it was time to see a urologist. Want to laugh during life's most embarrassing moments? LSG can help. Go to libertystreetgeek.net. Podcasters will give you a reason to wet yourself.